Welcome to the Not Just a Pony Ride podcast, presented to you by Hetra University. If you've landed here, you're probably passionate about how horses help people. This podcast is for anyone who helps others experience the benefits of horses or those who have experienced it themselves. If you're in the equine assisted services industry, we're here to help you. If you're here just to learn more, you're in the right place. Welcome to your community of like-minded people where you will hear stories, education, science, and explanations about how what we do is so much more than just a pony ride. And now, from the Hetra campus in Gretna, Nebraska, here's your host, occupational therapist and CTRI, Katie Ott. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We are broadcasting today from the Hetra barn. I have Shelby Schultz with me today. Shelby, do you want to introduce yourself and tell everyone what you do for Hetra? I am Shelby Schultz. I'm the program manager here at Hetra. Um, I handle all things programming from our driving program to our EAL program to the adaptive writing. I help oversee therapy services, programming, everything programming comes back to me. Busy lady. So today we are going to talk about sustainability of new programming and how you select programming that's going to work for your center and not cost you an arm and a leg, right? So I think a lot of centers are kind of in a boat right now where we're diversifying the services we offer, which is awesome. We're adding new things to grow our centers. Um, But what we want to focus on today is how are we checking all the boxes to make sure that that program is going to be successful and sustainable for your program, both from a Um, staff volunteer standpoint, but also your herd and your horses and how all of that is impacting um, all aspects of your center. So, um, Shelby, tell us a little bit about like, what's the process for someone comes in and says, hey, I want to start this new program. Let's say, um, let's say an EAL, you know, type of a program. We're not doing that now. Um, Hetra is, but let's just say I'm someone that comes and says, we're not doing this now, but what, you know, what are the steps or what should I be looking at to start this new program? So to start, anytime we want to start a new program, we've got a few milestones that we have to hit. So number one, we have to make sure that we have the qualified professionals to run the program or have people who are interested in getting the credentials to, to run the program. So um, say we have somebody come to us and they are qualified and credentialed to run an EAL program. Um, that checks that box already. Um, if they weren't, then we would have to figure out what do they need in order to be what whatever your program would consider as qualified to run that. Um, so that's kind of the first check is do you have do you have whether you call it whether you're staff or paid or volunteers, but do you have a staff person capable and qualified to man that program up front? The next check checkbox is going to be do you have the herd capability to do that? Do you need new horses for your herd? So, so we're talking about EAL, but what if it was a driving program? Do you have a driving horse or do you need to go find a driving horse? Do you have finances to purchase a driving horse? Or do you think you can find one that you can take on a lease or donation? With the EAL example, a lot of us can use the horses that we currently have in our herds. But I think one thing we have to be really aware of and keep in consideration anytime we add programming, we're adding workload to our horses. So even though that's not a mounted session, we are adding stress to our horses um, in a different way. And from an emotional tax standpoint, from a mental health standpoint, we have to keep those things in consideration for our horses. So do you have the horsepower to run the program? 
then do you have the volunteer power to run the program? Um, do you have volunteers who can help you? And some programs are more volunteer intensive than others. Um, some you can run without any volunteers. Some you're going to need nine volunteers to run one session, depending on what you're doing. Um, and then lastly, do you have the people in your community? Is there a need in your community for the program that you're adding? Um, so everything we talked about before this is going to be some sort of a financial burden, whether that be from the from having to pay somebody to go get credentialed or having to buy a new course or having to um, spend time training volunteers or spend time rec recruiting volunteers, um, that's all gonna be an expense. So do we have the population to serve to bring in some sort of revenue and make the program worthwhile to our community? Um, and, and I would venture to say most places do, but um, it might take a little bit of time to get that program up and running. So if we um, say we have a need in our program, and I'm going to switch our example. I'm going to go to a driving, um, carriage driving. So we say we have a need within our program. We've got a waiting list for riders that are over 180 pounds, and we really have the participants that could benefit from a carriage driving program. We have... Um, a local friend who's been a, has driven horses for a long time. They're interested in becoming a driving instructor. Um, we don't need a ton of volunteers to run the driving program, um, but we don't have a horse. So um, we really have to put all of that into perspective is how much is it going to cost us to get a horse? What kind of time is it going to take to train the horse to do what we need it to do? Um, and then how much revenue can we bring in from that program and how much rev how much is that program going to cost us? I think that's always the question is like, if you have this program that you want to start and like you said, we need to find a horse and we need to find, you know, train the driving instructor and all this like, okay, now if you put pencil to paper, how robust does our driving program need to be? How many participants do we need to serve a week in order to sustain that or make that work? Yeah. So, for example, um, I did some presentations recently on equine strategic planning and in in our hypothetical situation, they had a vaulting horse. Um, he was only used in their vaulting program, which was three days a week. Um, so he got used well, three sessions per week. So he got used three times per week. Um, the cost for them to keep that horse and run their vaulting program was over fourteen thousand dollars a year, a year. And that and the revenue that they were going to be able to bring in from that program was going to be a little bit under three thousand dollars. So that those are the kinds of things where we all are in this industry because we want to help people. But none of us are going to be in this industry for very long if we spend all of our money up front. Um, so I think that's something we have to really consider anytime we add a new program is how can we make it financially sustainable for our program? Most of us are nonprofits. We don't expect to make a profit off of the programs that we're running, but we also can't afford to be losing $10,000 a year to run programming for three people. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily sustainable, and the impact to our community is is not what we it could be. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we need to think about our bleeding hearts, you know, I say it all the time, our, our bleeding hearts say, but these three participants love the vaulting program, Shelby. They love it. They look forward to it every week, you know? So it's like, we want to keep those programs 
because they are making an impact on on three participant lives a week. But if we're being smart business owners, which nonprofits are businesses, how are we um, kind of looking at the pros and cons there? Or maybe the question is, okay, do we need to put some money into marketing that vaulting program then or transitioning, you know, some participants to that program or exploring that program and adding, you know, participants in elsewhere or whatever it is. And I think there's a lot of ways because, like I said, um, in that scenario, we're only having three people a week who are being benefited. But that it is it makes a world of difference mm-hmm. to those three people. Mm-hmm. So like Katie said, can we market it or can we transition some people in or um, maybe we can find a horse that can fit a driving and a riding situation mm-hmm. or a vaulting and a riding um, spot within our herd. And and I understand those are unicorns, but um, if we can find that and that horse can, you know, kind of help pull its weight in other programming for a period of time mm-hmm. until that vaulting program can grow. Um, we all know hor- our horses are a big, big budget line. Mm-hmm. So um, anytime we can have Horses that are talented in multiple areas and can serve in multiple programs, that's that's just a huge benefit for for us from a financial standpoint and and from a community support standpoint. Right. So you were the equine operations manager for the bulk of your career here at mm-hmm. Hetra. So you know um, our herd pretty well and how that selection process works. But um, I think Hetra does a really nice job diversifying our horses where they do they are kind of a double triple threat. Like yeah. they can do therapy, adaptive riding, or they can do driving and, you know, riding or whatever it is. Um, do you want to speak a little bit to kind of how finding those horses are worth the wait or like <laughs> worth the extra time that it takes to find them or extra money to find them because of the impact it has for your program? Yeah. And any, I, I think also from a, from an equine sustainability standpoint, at least in our experience, our horses are happier when they have a little bit more of a diverse workload. Yeah. Um, so if they're doing 10 adaptive riding lessons every week, they could get bored with that relatively quickly or they could need a change of pace or, you know, something like that. So anytime we can diversify that horse's abilities, the horses are, they're happier um, and, and it works out better for us. The other thing that it helps us with is um, if we have a horse that say, they have three carriage driving lessons per week and five independent riders per week. And then we have another horse who has two carriage drivers per week and two adaptive riders and three independent riders per week. If something happens to one of those horses, they get an abscess or they hurt their back or something happens. Um, we can, we can help pick up the slack with Mm -hmm. the other horses who are trained in a lot of different ways. Um, so if, if we have a horse that has to step out of the driving program for some reason, um, we have somebody else that can step in. And so we're not going to have to lose programming time for those participants because we don't have a horse for them. And I think we learned that, um, at Hetra too, is that we had a couple of driving horses and then we were kind of down to one. And then we had that driving horse was out for a period of time. And then those participants were left without programming. And, Um, Not only is that an impact to our participants, but also our center's bottom line, right? Like that program is no longer bringing in income because we didn't have the the diversification in our herd to support that gap. Mm -hmm. Which can be really hard if that happens at your center. Mm -hmm. So anytime we can have horses who are multiple 
good in multiple different areas, um, we're all, we're, it's a win for all of us. And going back to Katie's question about where do we find those horses and how do we, what, what lengths do we go to, to bring those <laughs> horses into our program? The golden question. Yeah. I mean, I, that really depends on where you're at in the country or the world. And it depends on what your program, what your program's needs are. So, um, for us, anytime we get a horse that pops up, either as a potential inquiry or maybe pops up for sale or we hear that so-and-so's um, headed to college and they're maybe going to be looking to rehome their horse. Anytime we hear something like that and we know that horse is already coming to us with a diverse skill set. So we know that horse rides and drives or we know that horse has a history of vaulting or we know that horse has extensive um, groundwork mm-hmm. skills plus riding skills. Those are going to be ones that pique our interest even if we don't necessarily need that horse right now um, because we might need that horse next week. Mm-hmm. Um, so anytime we get a horse that comes across that is a good fit, we're going to look at bringing them in. And then from a financial standpoint and a programming standpoint, if we need to look at retiring somebody else, we can look at retiring somebody that's maybe on the older side or maybe isn't quite as diverse. Or if we have one that's a little bit younger and um, you know, we don't think it's going to work long term. We can look at selling that horse because now we have something to fit that gap. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I mean, they are unicorns. You you really have to look for them um, and getting out into your community and just networking with people within the horse community in your area and letting them know what you do. Um, it's not just a pony ride, right? <laughs> right. Um, people think, you know, oh, they want to send us their 27 year old navicular that he can walk for 30 minutes a day and only carry 30 pounds because they think that's what we do. They Mm -hmm. think that we put kids on horses and we do a pony ride for 30 minutes. It's our responsibility as an industry to network with the horse people in our area and let them know the scope of what it is that we do. Let them know like, no, I need horses that can walk trot canter and no we need driving horses or Mm -hmm. we see adult riders and um, yeah, we do need the pony, but we also need the draft horse. Yeah. Um, and really getting out in your community and building that network of people and getting your name out there as a, as a trusted resource for a place for horses that, um, you know, maybe have a second or third career in them is, is hugely valuable. Oh, mic drop. I just love it. Like, I love that that concept is something that, um, we're talking about and looking forward to to in our community is just that networking and education about what we do. Because I think the other thing um, that people have a misunderstanding about is that our horses have to be beginner, 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 kick to start kind of, you know, horses. And while we do need some of those, mm-hmm. right, we also have riders that ride at the intermediate or advanced level. Like we have, um, our programs have that, that, diversity in them that we can accommodate some of those horses that people might not might overlook yeah for us absolutely absolutely and um to be honest i we're on the horse search right now i think everybody in the country is on the horse search right now um but we've actually even gone away from when we're first inquiring and we're talking about new horses with people unless they've come to us and they know what we do we don't even start the conversation by saying we were a therapeutic riding program and we're looking for horses because people will instantly assume that they know what your program needs. Exactly. And I can guarantee you, you know what your program needs more than they do. Um, and that for us has been, um, has really changed the approach. And 
And we are, we're always up front when we go to look at the horses or, you know, this is what we're doing with them and here's why we think they would work or here's why they wouldn't work. Um, but the amount of people that just say, no, my horse isn't appropriate for that because they think they understand what you do um, is really wild. And then when you hear what they think you do, um, they're like, well, he's not beginner broke. Well, I'm not looking for a beginner broke horse right now. I'm looking for an independent rider for a walk trot canner at intermediate and advanced levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I begin, I've got beginner broke. I don't need you know? Right. But as soon as they hear that, that sometimes can be a little bit of a roadblock. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Freedom Rider. Freedom Rider's mission is to provide safe, top quality tack, supplies, and resources for riders, horses, instructors, and trainers. Starting in 1996 as a catalog of hard-to-find specialty items for therapeutic riding and driving, this company has grown to include more items for therapeutic riding, hippotherapy, and able-bodied riders of all disciplines. By working with select manufacturers, specialized craftsmen and women, and actually developing their own products based on customer needs. This store carries everything from hard-to-find adaptive tack solutions, saddles, all different kinds of reins, educational books and curriculums, fun equipment like rings, bean bags, sensory items, and so, so much more. Check out Freedom Rider and all they have to offer at www.freedomrider.com. So just want to plug our listeners into a couple of resources that we have. Um, One, we've talked a little bit about like the equine strategic planning and sustainability of your horse herd today. Um, And Shelby, you presented on that at the Path International International Conference in North Carolina this year. And we are excited to put that out for um, everybody, that recording. So um, that will be going up on Hutcher University soon. Plug into that one because it was really, really good. Um, it has a handout that comes with it that um, Shelby mocked up kind of a, a budget. Yeah, it's like a uh, just a horse herd that it's a um, kind of a mid-sized horse herd. There's 10 horses in it. And we went through and um, put ages and breeds and um, workload capabilities and uh, how many lessons they do per week. And then we went through and put, okay, so this horse has navicular and it needs Equiox or this one's mm-hmm. Cushionoid needs Percent or whatever it is, put medication and supplement cost. We put feed cost, we put farrier cost, vet cost, those kinds of things all down um, based off of real life numbers, mm-hmm. real life situations for horses that you probably have in your program um, and put the dollars and cents to it so that we can evaluate what makes sense in our program and what doesn't. Um, and then going as far to see like how much, so we consider our horses on our payroll. Mm -hmm. Um, so going as far to look at like, how much do I have to pay jelly bean to work every day? Or how much do I have to pay apple to work every day? And, um, what kind of talents do they bring to the team? Um, and really starting to look at that with our horses. We do it with our employees all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, so really starting to look at that with our horses is, It's huge for our programs. Yeah. And you did a nice job in that presentation, kind of asking some of those harder questions and walking um, people through what some of that looks like. So um, look for that webinar. It'll be coming soon to HatcherUniversity.org. The other place I want to plug you in, which I will link in the show notes as well, is um, the form that we use when people are looking to donate us a horse. I don't know what the word is that I would use, but like... I want to give you this horse. Potential horse form. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Potential horse form. Potential horse form. I will link that form in the show notes. 
Um, so that you guys can look at that. That's been really helpful for us to help evaluate um, incoming horses. And the other, there's a couple other good um, webinars that you have done, Shelby, that I think are also related to this, like preventing horse burnout mm-hmm. um, and selecting uh, the, a horse for EAS. I think those are all good ones to kind of link and plug you guys into as well. Um, okay, that said, I want to shift gears just a little bit about um, going, you know, still on this theme of like program startup and like staff and volunteers and kind of like the opposite or the other side of the coin when we're talking about starting a program, which is like training, right? Finding a qualified staff to do that and like how we're evaluating length of time before this program really needs to be sustainable. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that that can be what's going to be right for our center and what's right for your center Mm -hmm. could be very different. But I think having those numbers in front of you when you start is is really important because before you know it you could be three years in and you're still running around willy-nilly and the program is which is easy to do in this industry it really is we do a lot of willy-nilly we do (laughs) do a lot of that yeah um so i think having that having that set and and what is reasonable for your program as you get started is important so Mm -hmm. and that's kind of where we got off of the tangent because our program can be more sustainable Um, or take a longer period of time to become sustainable if our horses and staff are multi-faceted. Yeah, Mm -hmm. faceted. So um, we can justify, you know, maybe that program can take five years to build up because our our horse and our staff are are being able to be functional in other areas of programming. Mm -hmm. Now, if our staff is only qualified to do that type of programming and our horse is only qualified to do that type of programming and we still have to pay that payroll every week. And mm-hmm. so that program is going to have to get up and going a lot faster. You know, you might have a year or two years or three years max before you're going to be expecting that to really be into a, um, into a role where it's bringing in some sort of revenue to your program or bringing in some sort of um, support for your program. Um, so I think that's really important. And I also think we, we always have to keep into consideration our volunteers because it takes it takes a village mm-hmm. you know, to do what we do. And um, so really getting the buy in from your volunteers, I think, is important as far as that goes. Uh, making sure that we have the right volunteers in place, that they have the volunteers have the training to support the staff, because every time we add new new types of programming, we have to train our volunteers on what we need them to, to be doing during that programming. So, um, And then you're paying your volunteer staff to train the volunteers and yep. your programming staff to run the program. Yep. <laughs> so it's like those numbers can add up really quick when you're doing a new startup. And you're pulling your volunteers from other programs. Right. So unless you've gone out and recruited new volunteers specifically for your new program, our volunteers are willing to give us X amount of hours per week. And if they're willing to give us three hours a week, and we're moving them from our adaptive writing program into our EAL program. Um, well, now we have to fill that hole in our adaptive writing program in order to still continue to offer that right. service. So I think that's something that we really have to take into consideration. So anytime we add a new program to what we're doing or a new type of service, I think having a roadmap, whether that be a simple strategic plan or mm-hmm. whether that's whether it's a paper document or a Google Doc or whatever it is that gets everybody kind of on the same page, 
as far as what the needs are and what the expectations are and what we need the growth rate to be, um, I think helps people get these programs up and running more successfully. And I think that people should not be afraid to, I'm not going to say micromanage because that's not the word I want to use, but I don't want people to be afraid to like really start to look at some of those details. Like, um, like here at Hetra, everyone, like we do a, um, like a time study Mm -hmm. of everybody, um, where for a week we write down like exactly what we're doing, like in, you know, within our, you know, our increments or whatever. But like you, you think about like this podcast or like some of the Hetra University stuff we do, like, yeah, like we need to know how many hours a week that I'm spending on this and how many hours a week I'm in the arena. And like, how are we putting pencil to paper on what it costs us to run the different programs, I think is really important. And I think we all work in nonprofit. And so other duties as assigned gets <laughs> yes. added on to our plates a lot. And so part of that time study is not only for you to know how you're tracking your time, but for, so if I say, Hey Katie, I need you to pick up this. Hey Katie, can I, can you pick up this over the next year? And pretty soon she's spending 13 hours a week doing EAL programming. That's not necessarily what, where we thought Katie was spending her time Mm -hmm. or do we need Katie to spend her time there? And we need to take some other things off of her plate so she can pivot and, and put her attention Mm -hmm. there. But I think if we don't pay attention to those details and if we don't, use those business techniques within our nonprofits, those those things kind of fall apart or fall off the radar. Um, and it makes it makes becoming sustainable really challenging. Right. And I think that, yeah, it's it's multi purpose, you know, doing something like a time study, because not only are we going to find out that you thought we were spending five hours a week on that EAL program, but I'm actually spending 20 hours a week on that EAL program. And you're like, holy cow, I didn't know that this program's costing us a lot more than I thought, you know, but it's also looking at like, oh my gosh, Katie, you're spending a lot of time on this and you're probably feeling a little stressed or, you know, looking at like some of the staff burnout and, you know, some of that stuff too. So I think it's for multiple reasons, doing something like that is helping the sustainability of our centers and programs in general. Absolutely. And I think helps us make these decisions on new programs. So right. if if we know Katie's spending 20 hours a week trying to build a new EAL program and we still only have two participants that are interested and no new leads on participants, then maybe that's not the program we need to be looking at. Maybe we need to be looking at starting something else. But if you're spending five hours a week on it and we've got 25 people knocking on our door to do it, then maybe we look at it and say, okay, if we justify another five hours a week, we can double that programming. Mm -hmm. Um, But for new startup programs, um, I I think really paying attention and having a plan for what, where things are going to go and then checking back in on that plan. So that's one thing that I think happens sometimes in nonprofits is we we start with a plan, right? We're really excited. We've got a roadmap. We've got a new exciting thing that we want to do. And then we don't look at it for eight months. Right. And we go back and we look at it eight months later and go, holy smokes, we got really off track. Mm-hmm. Or wow, we're not making the progress. Or we blew that out of the water and way underestimated or whatever it is. But really paying attention to going back and checking on that stuff. Yeah, 100%. I think so kind of like, Rewinding, going back to when we first started this conversation and looking at you're going to start a new program. Here's some things I think we talked about today that I think you need to do. 
we need to evaluate cost of our of that program and its sustainability, which includes horse usage, horse cost if you need to buy a horse or um, train that horse. So, like, not only is that you know that staff time that you spent looking for the horse, training the horse, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. We're looking at volunteer usage mm-hmm. and how we're training those volunteers. Do we need staff to train those volunteers? So that staff time counts there. The staff time to literally run the program mm-hmm. and or train that person, cost of that, right? Um, and then hours we're just spending in the program, mm-hmm. right? So those are kind of some of the cost things we're looking at as far as sustainability goes. The next thing would be community need and then getting getting um, cash flow back into the, or from that program. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing that, um, we need to always keep into consideration is facility hours. Mm. So, um, where we're at, our facility hours are very, very full. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so anytime we're using the arena for a certain type of programming, we can't be using it for something else. So, really looking at from a program scheduling standpoint, what that looks like. But also I know a lot of people pay by the hour to use their arenas or right. pay to run their programming out of somebody else's facility. So um, that programming hours and that facility time, making sure that that's where you want to be putting your resources mm-hmm. um, and that you have the, you have the community need to do it. Like I would really love to run a program where we all sit on our horses and, I don't know, drink wine, <laughs> whatever it is. Or, you know, I'd, right. I would really like to start a program where the cats, we sit and observe the cats. Like, but is there really a community need for that? Or right. is that just something that I have a weird whim and I want to do? Yes, I totally agree. And I think we should sort of wrap up this podcast with um, kind of the thought on like, new programming is great, but it has to fit your mission. Yeah. And, and that, yes. Like, it is this the direction your organization is going? Does it fit your mission, your vision statement? You know, all those things that you, like, work really hard to build your organization on, does it fit? Does it fit your mission? That is that is a very good example because my mission doesn't say that I can do cat observations. That doesn't fit my mission. Um, so I, I think that that's a really good point, and that's a, that's a good one to drive at home, Katie. Yeah, I think, like, if we had... If we had cats in our logo, it would be a great addition. It would be. (laughs) But we don't. So here we are, right? Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me, Shelby. I thought this was a great episode. People will get a lot out of it. Um, And uh, yeah, we'll have you back soon, I'm sure. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for listening to another episode. Until the next one launches, stay connected to our community by joining the Not Just a Pony Ride Facebook group. There, we share exclusive educational content answer your questions, and review new and exciting developments for the EAS community. Don't forget, if you have suggestions for future episode topics or a lead on a great guest that you think our audience would enjoy, click on the link in the show notes or visit us at hetrauniversity.org. This podcast is presented by Hetra University, an educational arm of the Heartland Equine Therapeutic Writing Academy. Hetra University's mission is to provide high-quality educational offerings to our participants and the EAS community. If you'd like to help us work toward our mission, you can make a donation by visiting us online at hetra.org. Again, I can't thank you all enough for helping Hetra change lives one stride at a time.